Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't just believe shit I hear in podcasts, and you shouldn't either. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I was wrong about something, the best thing you could do for me is let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I swear, and I don't bleep that shit out, so listener discretion is advised. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 78 of Living Through Extinction, a short to-the-point podcast with science and skepticism, environment and wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. Today, I'm going to talk a bit about how the state of Florida spread anti-vaccine disinformation disguised as an epidemiological study, the term blue carbon, how the moon wobbling devastates mangrove forests, an Alzheimer's drug breakthrough, and drying lakes in California. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome! I hope you find it both fun and informative. Most of this information came from an article by David Gorski at Science Based Medicine. This is some real deceitful shit. But that's today's Republicans for you. The state of Florida spread anti-vaccine disinformation disguised as an epidemiological study. As I say, all the time. There are bad eggs in every group, scientists and doctors included. And Joseph Lopato is one of those very bad eggs. Lopato was one of those doctors who rejected public health interventions from the start. Things like masking, distancing, vaccines. So guess whose eye he caught? Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, of course. This is one of those rare crooked doctors who would totally push his political agenda. So he made him the state surgeon general for Florida. The official in charge of Florida's health department. Thrilled with his new position and understanding who put him there, Ladapo became DeSantis's puppet, promoting anti-truth and anti-science as he was hired to do. His qualifications? Well, Gorski at Science-Based Medicine has a quote in his article from Dr. Ashish K. Iya, Dean of the Brown University of Public Health on the topic. Quote, To say he's out of mainstream would be an understatement. His views are not only very unorthodox, they don't make any sense. Unquote. And that's who DeSantis put in charge of your health, Florida. So this led to government recommendations to men 18 to 39 to not get vaccinated. And this statement, which was deliberately and deceitfully put out, was defended with a supposed study. The Florida Department of Health had an official press release about this supposed study. In this press release, they claimed that the analysis found an 84% increase in relative incidence of cardiac-related death among males 18 to 39 within 28 days of receiving the mRNA vaccination. It went on to say that the benefit of vaccination was likely outweighed by this risk for this demographic. This study, they claim, backs up their statement? And yes, study is in air quotes. Not only has it not been peer-reviewed, but there is no record of this supposed study ever being submitted to any peer-reviewed journal. 
And if that doesn't convince you that there's something rotten about this, there are no authors attached to it. What? We can't know who supposedly performed this study, or what the conditions were like, or if it's something that even happened at all. And just as presented, it's already full of the kinds of faults one does not want to see in a legitimate study. In his article, Gorski points out that this is the first time the U.S. has seen a state government weaponize bad science to spread anti-vaccine disinformation as official policy, which he also calls a dangerous new escalation in anti-vaccine propaganda. And I agree with his take on that 100%. It's fucking disgusting, but it's all they have. They don't have anything to actually offer the people. And really, in the end, they intend to take away. So they distract with stuff like this, and it works because their base are not made up of critical thinkers. They sure as hell aren't skeptical, damn it. I came across the term blue carbon a few times and didn't know what it meant, so let's learn. It turns out blue carbon is simply the term used to describe carbon captured by ocean ecosystems, coastal ecosystems, and tidal marshes. So I've actually talked about blue carbon a few times in the past without knowing the term. When carbon is sequestered in plants and then the plants die and become a part of the sediment below, that's blue carbon. And it can hold it and keep it out of our atmosphere for hundreds to thousands of years. We talk about trees cleaning the air and I'm supporting one tree planted who I haven't made a post about in a while. Have to get on that. Anyway, apparently seagrasses, mangroves, and salt marshes capture and hold carbon at a faster rate than forests on land do. When I talked about fertilizing the ocean to be able to take in more CO2, I should have referred to that final result as blue carbon. Now I know. I understood that the moon affects the tides, but I never really realized the damage that occurs here on Earth when it wobbles. I mean, now it seems obvious, but I can't claim I'd made this connection before actually reading about it. In 2015, nearly 10% of Australia's mangroves suddenly died along a thousand kilometer shore of the Gulf of Carpentaria. At first, it was thought to be that year's El Nino weather, but the tens of millions of plants lost still seemed really severe, even with the weather. Researchers became curious and used national satellite data to analyze more than 30 years worth of information. One of the discoveries was that there is a massive loss of mangrove trees about every 18 to 19 years, and they bounce back within a couple years. It takes about nine years to get back to a good healthy density. The other discovery was that the moon wobbles on an 18.61 year cycle, and these wobbles match up with the mass losses of mangrove forests. Normally, the mangroves filter fresh water from the salty seawater that surrounds them. When this moon wobble occurs, the tide is affected. It's not coming in as far, so there's no salt water to filter fresh water out of. The gravity of the moon is keeping the tide from reaching millions of these trees. This research and the results have been published in Scientific Advances. Lakes in California are drying up, and it's causing a whole lot more problems than just a reduction of usable water. Owens Lake is one that held water continuously, and at times actually overflowed to the south for at least 800,000 years. Right up until the last couple centuries, it fluctuated between 7 and 15 meters in depth. Then, it went down rapidly after 1913. The causes were a combination of drought conditions and human intervention. Human intervention actually probably being the larger part of the cause. 
1913, we diverted water from the Owens River to Los Angeles, keeping it from flowing into Owens Lake. With no new water coming in and drought conditions to boot, the lake bed was dry by 1926. Now, instead of providing water, Lake Owens produces massive amounts of windblown dust. The dust is incredibly fine and can get into the smallest cracks, contaminate homes, or gunkuk machinery. This airborne dust is classified as PM10, which means the particles are smaller than 10 microns in diameter. This is small enough to be able to be inhaled very deeply into the respiratory tract. Obviously a health hazard, particularly for those already suffering from respiratory-related illnesses. But it's more than just getting particles in your lungs. It's what those particles are made up of. Trace metals are contained in the dust from the lake bed. When dust traps are collected after dust storms and tested, between 10 and 50 parts per million of arsenic are found. These are significant amounts to be floating through the air people are breathing. The lake bed itself contains 50 parts per million arsenic over its majority, but reaches as much as 150 parts per million in the north and east sections. So as more of it breaks down, does this mean the parts per million in the air may increase as well? Another substance found in high amounts in the dust from the storms is salt. As the salt-rich dust settles over soil and vegetation, it's having all sorts of negative effects there as well. And it's going far. The towns in its immediate vicinity are the hardest hit, but the dust storms reach elevations of over 3,000 meters and affect both the air quality and the visibility in three national parks and several national forests and wildlife areas. On the east side of Owens Lake is a community called Keeler, which experiences high enough levels of all the bad things from the dust to be considered hazardous about 25 days of the year. In a nearby community called Ridgecrest, they get this hazardous level about 10 days out of every year. On these days, apparently the emergency rooms and doctor's offices fill up with people whose normal symptoms from whatever ails them are suddenly much worse. The Salton Sea is another problem. This is a saltwater lake which has been shrinking for some time. Located in Riverside and Imperial Counties in Southern California, it is quite shallow and has a very high salt content. It's also known as the Salton Sink because it is at the low point of an endorheic basin. While it can receive water, it has no outflows. Other terms for these types of lakes are terminal lakes, terminal basins, or closed basins. In the 70s, scientists issued warnings that this lake would continue to shrink and as a result become more inhospitable to its surroundings. In the 80s, it was contaminated from farm runoff, where it got most of its water from. This brought on disease and massive die-offs. Several species of fish, as well as the avian populations which fed on those fish, were affected. It also continued to increase in salinity until it contained a 50% greater concentration of salts than the ocean. This also caused massive die-offs of fish. And as dead fish began to wash ashore more and more frequently, it reached the point where tourism was obviously greatly affected as well. As a landlocked lake, it was fed by rainfall and irrigation runoff from the surrounding area. Since 1999, farmers have been using their water much more efficiently to the point where they aren't adding much to the lake with their runoff anymore. Since then, the water of the lake has steadily gone down. This means a steadily growing dry lake bed. As the sediment becomes exposed, the wind picks it up and sends the toxic dust into the surrounding communities, ruining local air quality. The wildlife of the area is also obviously affected by this. In 2020, Palm Springs Life magazine said that the Salton Sea derives its fame as the biggest, 
environmental disaster in California history. Yikes! In November of this past year, it was announced that $250 million in drought funding would be going to the Salton Sea over a four-year period. I'm not exactly sure what that money is supposed to do. That's something I have to check further into at some point. I mean, all the money in the world can't make it rain where you want it to, right? Mono Lake is another danger. It lost half of its volume and doubled in salinity between 1941 and 1981, and it is also infecting the local air with toxic dust storms. There was a brief period where Mono Lake was thought to have been saved thanks to advocacy and new rules and regulations put in place. But drought conditions were just too much to overcome, and it's no longer considered salvageable. More of Mono Lake's lake bed is going to continue to be exposed every year. In April 2021, the San Gabriel Reservoir Lake Bed officially turned to dust. In June of 2021, one California lake dried up to the point where it exposed a plane which had crashed in 1965, allowing officials to investigate and possibly solve this 56-year-old mystery. This same month, about 130 houseboats had to be hauled out of Lake Oroville when the water there got as low as 38% capacity. None of this is good news especially for those who are caught in these dust storms. Drought conditions are not really expected to get any better anytime soon either. The air quality in the communities surrounding these drying lake beds is going to continue to make people sick. Here in Manitoba, surrounded by lakes and rivers my entire life, this is very hard to imagine for me. When you look at a map of North America, it would make sense to hit Manitoba first when America eventually decides to invade us for our water. And with the way the politics is turning down there, and the way these droughts are continuing and worsening, that may not be as far into the future as we once might have thought. The FDA has approved a new Alzheimer's drug called Lecanemab. 30 years ago, Sir John Hardy identified the role of the amyloid in Alzheimer's disease. He had been approached by a woman with a family full of Alzheimer's and used her family to conduct studies. Blood was taken from as many family members as possible so that he could look for the genetic differences between those who ended up with the disease and those who did not. This led to his discovering that mutations in the amyloid precursor protein genes were present in those who developed Alzheimer's. This creates the amyloid plaques that form in the brain during Alzheimer's disease. This can result in the surrounding brain cells becoming overactive, inflammation occurring, and or affect blood flow any of which could disrupt the normal processes of the brain. Too much of an amyloid deposit can also react with another protein called tau, which causes neural death, so very bad. With genetically caused Alzheimer's, these issues will occur earlier in life because the patient makes too much APP, that's the amyloid precursor protein. With non-genetic Alzheimer's, they occur at a much slower rate. He then spent the next 30 years trying to figure out how to affect it, the drug he came up with, lecanemab, which I'm probably saying wrong, has been shown to reduce markers of amyloid in early Alzheimer's disease. The result of this has been a slowing of the rate of cognitive decline in those with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Discoveries build upon each other, and this could be a step that leads to better and better medications for this illness. It could also mean that people like you and me might be able to stay lucid longer as we enter into old age. notes have all been tossed on the floor, so that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. My eternal thanks goes out to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project three years ago. 
I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family, without whom I don't even know if I'd be here, never mind doing something I love. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 79 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. And it can now also be found at LTE Pod on Hive, though I think it can still be found if you search Living Through Extinction. There's also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction. There you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias.